Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can check out our courses, our community, and everything we do at onecommune.com. Today on the show, I have the distinct privilege of interviewing author and philosopher Charles Eisenstein. Born in 1967, Charles describes himself as a very sensitive, intellectual, and dreamy child. He graduated from Yale University with a degree in mathematics and philosophy, but his scholarly development brought him no closer to the truth he really cared about. After college, he went to Taiwan, learned Chinese, and soon found himself working as a translator. He spent most of his 20s there educating himself in Eastern spiritual traditions and reading voraciously on topics from health to psychology and spirituality. After an extended period of searching, Charles birthed his first book, The Ascent of Humanity, where he originally articulates his theory of separation, which serves as the philosophical underpinning for much of his work. We do talk about this in the interview, but I feel compelled to outline the basic idea here as it is so fundamental to Charles's work. So here it is. Humankind has developed a story that we are discrete, separate individuals amongst other individuals living in an external universe that is separate from us. This duality influences our spiritual and scientific stories, the separation of the spiritual from the material, the separation of the mind and the body, evolutionary biology that frames life as a competition where only the fittest will survive. This dualistic view of the world not only pits people against each other, but also positions humans as separate from nature. It gives us dominion over it, and we are experiencing the ramifications of that now. Now, much of Charles's work focuses around changing this myth that upholds our imagined order. We can choose another story of interdependence and connection that can address so many of our salient issues from loneliness to income inequality to global warming. Charles also penned Sacred Economics, which explores a new cultural story as it applies to the world of money, economy, and gift. And most recently, he wrote the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. A note to listeners, this podcast is split into two episodes, which are ideally meant to be listened to together, but ironically, we separated them into two episodes to make them conform to commutes, workouts, or whatever you're doing while you're listening. We touch on a lot of issues uh, from the sacred nature of the material world, the fundamental nature of consciousness, the failing political system, climate change, and the emergence of this new cultural story. I hope you enjoy it. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. So as we were eating nuts in preparation, um, for this conversation, I was telling you about a sort of an, like a bit of an emotional process that I'm going through right now, <coughs> where we have a house that's been in the family for a hundred years. That um, is a lovely, beautiful house, not that far from where you live, and um, that my daughter was actually born in that front room 
and on a stormy day in August and the skies cleared and a rainbow appeared and the bluefish started jumping and all this um, kind of beautiful bucolic kind of scene and we've had so many memories there and um, but it's a completely irrational thing to own and to have and to maintain and so to satisfy sort of our rational brain um, <coughs> we've been sort of pathetically trying to sell it for a long time in an effort really not to sell it and then sort of lo and behold someone came along and did purchase it and we're just going to contract now and you know dealing with this idea of letting go of something in the material world that does legitimately hold, I guess, what you might think of as some, you might define as something sacred. And I guess my question would be is like, when do things in the material world hold like a, a something, a symbolic value that is real and important and not just kind of fleeting and ephemeral? It's not just a symbolic value. You could ask the same question about your old dog. <laughs> you know, this dog is, well, I have a sentimental attachment to it. It's been in the family for a long time, but it can no longer do the work that the dog used to do to corral the chickens or whatever it did. Um, so rationally, there's no reason to keep, to keep maintaining this dog. Why don't we just put it down? We don't think that like we wouldn't do that for a beloved dog <laughs> or your you know grandmother or something like that <laughs> but for a house that's okay right because this house is not a being it's just a material thing mm. this devaluation of materiality i think is a problem mm. it's not mm. to say that that you should treat a house the same way you should treat a dog or a human being but it's to ask what is the right way to treat the house? It's, you, you can't, by analogy, give it the same treatment you would give your grandmother. But to even consider that there is a right way to do it that takes into account the house as being, and not just as symbol, what it means to you, but to actually be in a relationship to it. And what I was proposing to you before is that, that you understand this potentially as a breakup like a breakup with someone that you really love. And how do you go about that breakup? And why would you break up with somebody? Maybe you are ready to go your separate ways. But I think that, that whether or not, and maybe you're not ready to break up. Um, maybe you realize, but either way, <laughs> yeah. um, if you do understand it as a breakup, then you'll be able to go through whatever ritual or process you need to so that you feel okay with it. Right, and I, I suppose that my individual plight, my petty little life, um, is just, you know, back on the top of a pinhead. But that this notion of uh, letting go, of moving on, I think anyone can see their story in that. And, and is there ways to essentially instill these things with meaning and I, I like for example you talk about something inanimate objects or material objects that we can sort of almost toss them away as if they don't really matter 
-hmm. but actually they have a life to them, right? So how do we, mm, what is that process of grace in a breakup? (laughs) I think it's a pretty bad habit to treat the material things of the world as if they don't matter. Yeah. Because collectively, as humanity, we are now treating the planet as if it were some material thing that doesn't matter. Right. And this ideal of the separate self kind of floating above materiality and, yeah, I moved from this house to that house and I'm not attached. I'm not attached to this thing. I'm not attached to to anything material. Um, This is a conceit. Mm. This kind of independence is a conceit because you could apply it to human beings too. And there are, I think, distorted spiritual teachings that that counsel us to avoid attachment. But I think that to avoid attachment is to avoid being fully alive. Mm -hmm. And that real life isn't about protecting yourself from the pain of loss, but it's really going in there and fully loving and then and knowing that you're going to lose everything that you love and being willing to go through the grief of that. Yes. Then you've lived. Yes. I read that Eric Fromm wrote something about this, which is like, there is a way not to grieve, but the only option not to grieve is also not to love. Yeah. And who would want that life? And then, so, but then that brings up something for me that I really have been grappling with, which is this notion of non-attachment. And this, you know, speaks directly to Buddhism, I suppose, that, you know, we are all constantly distracted by desire and desire, this sort of incessant desire is at the core of suffering. I'm like fidgeting around in my chair just to always kind of elicit some sort of pleasant feeling all the way up to like, I need my McMansion in the hills. Um, and that essentially you can cultivate practice to separate to sort of separate yourself from this desire and find what I guess one might call consciousness something outside of your thoughts, feelings, objects that you perceive through your limited five senses, and that then in this kind of seat of the soul, in this true self, there is this awareness and one of the things that I have been trying to grapple with is this. Is the fundamental nature of consciousness good or is it neutral? Essentially, if you can cultivate that true awareness outside of feelings, emotions, objects, is that characterized by love, compassion, empathy, or is it something that is just purely neutral and focusable on good, fear, evil, da da da? The default state of existence is bliss. Mm. And everything else is a temporary excursion away from that. Which doesn't mean that these excursions are a mistake. Ultimately, they, they feed uh, an evolutionary process where uh, life and the universe become more and more alive and being becomes more and more existent, um, more and more complex, more and more related, more and more full. So the question then becomes, okay, 
yeah, desire births suffering, but maybe this whole this whole journey into into suffering, this whole excursion, is happening for a reason. Another way to look at it is, okay, so yeah, say desire causes suffering, but can what are you going to do with that information? Can you exercise your will to suppress desire? Yeah. Or could it be that desire needs to be fulfilled and exposed for its false premises before you can even transcend it? And that doesn't mean you're transcending all desire. Maybe it means you're just transcending this desire. I think that the problem isn't desire. The problem is that is that the primal energy of desire gets diverted onto false yeah. objects uh, that don't actually meet the desire, like the McMansion in the hills. Right. You know, what's the real desire there? It's probably not for the McMansion in the hills, because if it were, you would live happily ever after if you had that. Yes. But the same hunger that is grasping for the mansion in the hills isn't satisfied by the mansion in the hills. Right, yeah. Maybe it, what it really wants is the feeling of being at home in the world. Right. But don't know how to get that, don't even know what that is, so I'll go for the mansion. But maybe even to realize that that is what I wanted all along requires that you first get the mansion. Yes. funny i saw like a heat map of one of these mcmansions of where people actually spend their time in the mcmansion the breakfast nook it was clustered in the breakfast nook <laughs> yeah. in, in the bed and then right. there's you know ten thousand square feet of space that never get used and because right. they never get used they never get used you know because it feels so foreign and that yes I think, you know, what you're saying and I think what we might agree upon is that we are essentially always chasing, pursuing happiness through the accumulation of goods and services that will never really serve us. And um, and I want to go back because something that I feel that is so fundamental to your philosophical approach on the human condition is separation and the separate self. So I wonder if you could just, I'd love for you to talk about kind of what that means and sort of how we got there and then play that forward into modern society. What are the implications of it? How do we address it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the separate self is the myth that underlies our entire civilization all of our systems and institutions tap into the myth of separation. And I, I mean myth, not in the sense of some, you know, <laughs> fantasy, some ridiculous yeah, thing. <laughs> but, but a myth in terms of a story that explains the world. Mm. So the story of separation explains who you are. You're a, a separate individual. You are a soul encased in flesh. You are a Cartesian moat of consciousness, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it, it answers the question, why are you here? It's to 
survive, to reproduce, to maximize your self-interest. There's really almost no why you're here in this story. It, it answers the question, what is the way to live? And what are human beings for? And what constitutes progress? And it is that humans are separate from nature, destined to rise above nature, to dominate nature, to transcend nature, to harness natural forces, to someday no longer need nature. It also says what the nature of reality is and how change happens in the world. What are the ruling powers of this world? Right, right. It's forces in the story of separation. Uh, and I could go on and on. And often what I do in my work is I say, okay, how exactly does that basic paradigm inform our medical system or our economic system right. or our spirituality or our politics? Uh, and you can see the traces of separation in all of these institutions. Yeah. Well, essentially, what are the means by which we can address our growing sense of separation and individualism, even just okay. to become aware of it. Right, right, right. It speaks to this helplessness that I hear so often of what are we going to do about this? Yeah, right. As if it were up to us. Mm. So you, you inquired, how do we uh, launch a movement or to, to reverse the tide of separation? Because it seems like it's going to take some mighty effort to accomplish this turnaround. But you know what? The current story did not result from a mighty, intentional, purposeful effort. Right. So like, it's not like we got down and said, okay, things aren't going very well. Let's launch the story of separation. The alternative understanding is that we are carried by a process and a movement that is much, much bigger than anything that we can create or intend. That is to step back from this anthropocentrism. Our future is not fundamentally what we are consciously creating. And this goes against a lot of spiritual teachings where you become the conscious creator of your reality. Right. Where do we get that arrogance? I think it is an extension of the technological mindset, which is that we're going to put the human stamp onto the disordered, chaotic, wild world outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we want to do the same individually through these spiritual practices and collectively by creating a vision of the future and stamping that onto the future. I think that's just as necessary as it is for a fetus, a baby is being born to make sure that that birth happens. It's not that the fetus has no role. Uh, 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 it's easier to give birth to a live baby than to a stillborn because the livingness of the baby responds to the contractions, the birth process of the mother. And that response is itself part of the process. So right now, like a, a baby being born, we are subject to what we experience as titanic forces. And we don't know what's happening to us and we don't know what to do, but we respond to those in whatever way that we know how. 
we understand those and the way that we understand them, responding accordingly, we have no idea really what's going on here. Part of our response is to make meanings and to try to impose them onto what's happening, to try to control what's happening. It's not bad to do that. That itself is part of the response. And to say we're not going to try to control it is itself a form of control. And this search for, okay, what are we supposed to do now? It, it taps into the, the lineage of we always, our role is to be the doers. The doer, yeah. 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 And, and that is necessary when, sorry to run on here, but. No, no, this that's, is good. That's necessary when there is no larger doing that we can participate in. And I'm, what I'm offering is at the current stage right now, not to stop doing and stop responding, but we are being carried by an inconceivable, mysterious process. Right. Yeah, the, it's it's that's interesting because it, in some ways it defies the instinct that I have of like we need a spiritual awakening that we. I said, you know, I just read it was Martin Luther King Day on Monday. I took a little bit of time to actually read. Imagine that. Um, the letter from a Birmingham jail where he essentially is addressing a bunch of clergy in Birmingham that have uh, that are essentially speaking out against marching, against passive resistance and nonviolence and everything that the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was doing with Martin Luther King. And so he writes this response from the Birmingham jail, which is essentially like, you know, we are all connected. That essentially, if my daughter uh, can read, but your daughters can't, then I am poor. You know, essentially, you know, and, and you've heard many of these essentially interconnected, interdependent spiritual messages, you know, come to the fore that have over time addressed the salient societal problems or issues where you know like if you look at slavery the abolition movement had its roots in quakerism i mean oftentimes when we hit these loggerheads um that the answers tend to lie in our spiritual underpinnings and you know and i want to talk about politics because i, I don't think the change is going to come from there and but I think what, what's interesting about what you're saying is that oh, you're like, Jeff, no, 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 don't wait. Jesus is not going to roll in <laughs> and say like, oh, you know, everybody, we've been misguided. Here again are your universal truths. Everyone get back in line. You know, capitalism's built some nice plumbing for society to function, but we're pumping shit through it. You've got to like work through a lens of these values and you'll be cool. But what I'm hearing is that that's not going to come from us necessarily. It is being born within us and from us. Mm. It's not something that we can engineer. It's f it, our engineering efforts are part of it, but it is itself beyond our engineering. It's beyond our contrivance. It's beyond our understanding. We can understand it maybe in retrospect, Maybe in hundreds of years now we can, we can name. Here is what the transition was. Um, but from where we are now, we cannot map it out. We cannot plan it, and therefore, 
current politics in terms of, okay, let's form some policies that are going to bring us through this transition. Um, all of those will fall woefully short of the task. However, we can also sense that there is a destination. Otherwise, we would have no hope. The hope doesn't come from any rational projection that we can make it through this, the current emergency because what we need to make it through doesn't even exist in the vocabulary of reason as society accepts it. I'm not saying it's irrational, but according to the premises of that, are, that the old story of separation establishes, it is impossible. Hmm. According to what we, I mean, that's part of, us, of the myth. The myth right. tells us what's possible and what isn't. According to what it says is possible, there's no way. There's no way anything's ever going to change. I mean, is it possible for there to be true peace in the Mideast, say, between Israelis and Palestinians? I'm not talking like a ceasefire. I'm talking about brotherhood. Right. I'm talking about fraternity, forgiveness, <laughs> yeah. yeah, redemption, right. healing. Is that, I mean, it's not even like the most modest peace proposals seem to be politically naive. So it's impossible according to what we have established mm. in our common perception as possible. Right. So that means that, that anything that we can constitute politically won't reach anywhere close to the destination that we paradoxically know exists. Therefore, to get to that destination, we have to accept a different guidance, a guidance that lies outside the realm of what we have agreed is possible. Mm. We have some help in this journey because most people that I meet anyway have in fact experienced the impossible. They've experienced things that the old story embodied in science tells them is possible. And these anomalous experiences, it's as if they are coming from the future. And each one that we experience creates a thread linking present with that particular future. These are the, the, the signposts, the breadcrumbs that we can follow to reach a place that we don't know how to reach. Thank you for listening to today's show with Charles Eisenstein. Remember that this is a two-part episode. If you are interested in learning more about Charles, his books, and podcasts, please go to charleseisenstein.org. We'll have a new commune course coming with Charles soon, so keep an eye out. That's it from the commune for this week. Please subscribe and leave us a review. And more importantly, email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. I always love hearing directly from you. That's it from the commune. I'm Jeff Krasnow, and in honor of Ramdas, in love, include me.